Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live.
point that every time we get up and preach, every time we're going to get up and teach, everything we're going to be teaching and preaching about, it is so consistent and congruent. It works together. It, there's no stray thought or concept. Every time we go to preach on one thing, we find this, uh, the same thing in other doctrines and other passages of Scripture. For example, <clears throat> we just finished a six-week study on the issues of marriage and singleness, and even talked about the homosexual issue, right? From a biblical perspective. Now, we have seen, even in the media, in the news, pastor after pastor, church after church, I believe there's 24 books out now, why we need to change our perspective on homosexuality. There's 24 books out that are saying why we need to change our perspective on what marriage is. You know, we hold to a certain type of of marriage is biblical marriage, and we we also deny a certain type of marriage, and that's anything that's unbiblical, because we see it in Scripture. But do you see it being played out? Everything we talked about, it, it affects every one of us in some way, does it not? That's the way the Bible always is. It's never just a a non-relevant book. So for the for the the New Age type people, those that just kind of think their own silliness. You don't have to make the book of God relevant. You just got to preach it. You just got to teach it. Now, I may not be some great preacher. I may not be a great teacher. But I'll tell you this. I know a great God, and he's got a great word. It doesn't take a great man of God to preach the word of God because God in his greatness has given it to him. Think about it. We've been studying the uh, in Sunday school about the peacemakers. And as we've been studying about the peacemaker, it, it has stirred up controversy, and it always will. You think about it. As we go through the words of God, we're talking about sovereignty. As, as we got to looking at the issues of sovereignty, questions came up. Place has. Okay? Some questions. Is God sovereign? And what does it mean? Okay? What does that mean that God is sovereign? i got to pause for a second. I took too long. Don't you love this new age fangled technology? Fangled, not new age. Okay. Here's some questions that have come out. Is God sovereignty? And if so, what does it mean? Is God sovereignty? Is God sovereign? And if so, what does it mean? Those questions have come from many people. Does God save, and what does it mean to be saved? Is salvation monergistic or synergistic? You will. Okay, here's, here's some words you're really going to know. Are we to hold the infilapsarian position, or do we hold to the supralapsarian position? Guys? When I said that the first time, everybody went, huh? Right? Remember that? Okay. Is salvation and preservation solely a sovereign work of God, or is man free to save and or keep himself? See, there's many, many things that came up and come up from what we've been teaching on the doctrines of grace, if you will. What does it mean 
What about predestination? Doesn't that make God responsible for ignorant people's suffering? Does this matter, or can and should we just continue on without reaching these subjects? You've got to ask these questions. These are questions that need to be considered. It's a good thing to ask them. I'll email them to you. But I can't, I don't, I don't have 24-7. I tell you what, if you guys bring more people in here so I can do this full time, and I can devote all my time to only doing this, then I promise you, you will have perfect outline, and you'll have perfect everything. I promise. I've got enough people trying to help me do it. <laughs> okay. So here's the question. Here's the question. Does doctrine matter? Does doctrine matter? If it matters, shouldn't our primary concern be unity at all costs? That doesn't always mean unity, right? Okay. All these questions, I'm going to back this up so you can so you can start writing. Okay. But don't lose focus on what I'm talking about. Okay, otherwise I'll stop doing that. These questions have come up to some degree for years. We've all struggled through these questions. As we've spoken and taught about these issues, we clearly hold, we believe, to the biblical teaching and reformed position on these matters. But do we see the truths in Scripture as a whole, or do we take the verses out of context just to say, oh, this means this to me, this means that to me? See, that is biblical suicide. We cannot do that. I want to take a minute to point out the providential hand of God, okay? As we see it in the scriptures, because it matters so much to the passages that we're overviewing, okay? Um, I want to be honest with you, we're not really going to get into a lot of detail about Luke, what we just read, okay? But this is an overview today, because next week we're going to try to bring out the truth, and for the next month, we're going to bring out these doctrinal truths. So don't start saying, but what about this and what about that? Take your time and listen to where we're at. Because I want to give you a flow because this is going to honestly take months to go through. Okay? Rome wasn't built in a day, and we can't go through these doctrines in one day. We can't go through all these truths. So give you the outline. These are no. These are all questions that have come up that we need to deal with and more. But how do they apply to the doctrines that we hold to? Okay, there's a lot of questions here. There's a lot of questions we've already talked about. And if you have more questions, there's a lot of sermons on there that we've already discussed. A lot of these when we talk about intralapsarian position, we've talked about that. For two weeks we discussed the difference between the two, monotheism and synergism. It's a test. Everybody write down, because if, if you don't get the answers right, we're going to fire you. Okay. Don't get lunch. Okay, here we go. Yeah, he'll give it to you. Supra, S-U-P-R-A. 
is from the Lord. Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. God, we just read this in the Sunday school lesson, did we not? I didn't get it in the Sunday school lesson. It's amazing how these things work together. Let's go. Proverbs 16, 2 through 4. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. That's the day of destruction, the final judgment. Proverbs 16:9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19:21. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 20:24. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? You think about these passages. Look at Proverbs 21:1-2. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And Proverbs 21, 30 and 31, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. What is all of these passages saying? Every single one of them points to the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Not just in salvation, but in every step of life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, 4 through 9 says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the, great, of the grace of God that, has, that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ is confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see the rich truth of God's sovereignty and his perseverance in these passages? Well, they're, they're the ways that God has, has enriched us is just too numerous to speak about. But think about these things. What about here in our church? To even talk about what God has done for us in the church here at Grace Church is, is almost impossible. Think about it. He's enabled us to stand and defend doctrinal and theological truth, to teach clarity, to bring about the truth and word of God and have no fear that anyone's going to come in and make shipwreck of our faith. He is allowed by his sovereign grace, by his hand, he has allowed us to be able to stand, to be able to, if you want, if you want to say it this way, to be able to stand solid and firm in him. There's a solid reason why I, I hold to Reformed theology, and we don't teach the Pelagian, the Arminian position. And the reason is, is that from that philosophical position, the reason that we do 
harmonize scripture. They make shipwrecks. You see, the scriptures say one thing in one spot, one thing in another spot. That doesn't mean that the word of God is is a, a jumbled mess of this disjointed thought. What it means is that if there is one true living God that is sovereign and hold man responsible. You see, it's not a misnomer or a contradiction for God to be both sovereign and to hold us responsible for our own actions. Okay? And what we have to do is we have to study to show ourselves approved. We have to look at the Word of God. To hold fast to our confession, and if if I'm going to add, I believe God's used this church to teach those truths. So I want to take some time to show you the providence of God. Um, As as, as we're showing the providence of God as it relates to what we're going to be studying about in the coming months, So in this overview, I want to kind of prepare you for this. The coming sermons are going to be under the heading, The Great Doctrines of the Faith. But listen to me. This sermon, as I've told you guys in the Sunday school class, have been going on for a year, a little more than a year now. When I went to the David Miller Conference, April? April of last year. Got that Kindle. Hey, guys. I got this one now. Praise, I, I praise the Lord for it. It's, it's a big help to me. So I have that little Kindle, and I loaded up everything that they paid for. Because I didn't have the money for that. And and I, I loaded up books like D.B. Warfield, uh, John Calvin, Augustine of Hippo, uh, or Augustus, if you will, of Hippo, uh, The Potter's Freedom by James White, The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. Um, I, I've got over 300 books written up on this thing that, that have come up that have been just clear doctrinal truth. Uh, books of the confessions from the first and second centuries. I mean, I've got, I've been able to, to pull up all these different books of great Christian leaders in the faith, people like um, Whitfield and Moody. I've been, uh, you know, Spurgeon, and I love Spurgeon. I've got, I think I've got almost everything Spurgeon's got. Um, I, I've been able to bring all these up, the commentaries by Hodge and Boyd and Dagg and, and Henry. And to, to go through these things and, and learn and teach. And I, don't, I won't let you forget John MacArthur, but I want to point out something to you. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. Get books from old dead guys. I don't mean that disrespectfully, but get books from old dead guys. And here's why. Everything they said has been tried and tested. It's been looked through, fought over, and beat up. If it's trash, nobody wants it. If it's true, it's held fast to the test of time. Books from old dead guys. As soon as we got that Kindle, I started to open the book up and I started going through Luke. And as I started bringing out these, these doctrinal truths that we're going to be talking about, as I started bringing them out, it, it amazed me all the doctrines that are just in Luke chapter 5. I don't want to point some out to you. I want to point some of these out to you because I want you to see how they interrelate with all the questions we've been having. Open this back up. I didn't lay them out here, but I'm, I'm going to read them off to you. I apologize for that. I didn't have time. <laughs> Listen to this. Some questions that, that also came up, some questions about total depravity, the absolute inability. Um, what does what does it mean and where does it come from? The question is, is it biblical? Talking about total depravity. What about election? Is it unconditional? 
What about uh, what do reform? Why do reform Christians insist on limited atonement? Is that biblical? Is it a biblical position? Think about that question. Is that a biblical position? What about irresistible grace? Can you resist the grace of God? What what about the perseverance and preservation of the saints? Well, now look, let's see. In verse 13 through 15, and I will bring this up. Let's look back here. In verses 13 through 15, it says, But now, even more, the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places. What does that talk about? It's the same. I didn't read the whole thing. I went through verse 15, but if I went through all three verses, think about this. What is this section talking about? Well, as, as I got to studying this, this is talking about Jesus Christ. As the Bible reveals, he's our great high priest. You see, all of this passage is to point to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the God-man. And you're going to see it clearly defined. He's going to do things no one has ever been able to do by a power that no one's ever had or seen. He can't just be a good person. He has to be the God-man. But when he does what he does, he does something nobody's ever done before. As the God-man, as deity incarnate, he must do what only he can do. Verses 13 through 15, for example, are going to show us our, our high priest and his perfect life of sinless as the sinless substitute. Now, you're going to consider uh, death and sickness and man's depravity in these sections. Think about this as we go back. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. As we go back to verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the high priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof of them. But even more, the report of him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places. Now, as I look at verse 13 and 14, I'm looking at uh, Jesus Christ as he's making the law perfect. If you look at verse 13, you see that Jesus stretched out his hand, and he healed the man, and immediately the, the leprosy left him, and he charged him to, to go and show yourself to the high priest, to the priest, and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof of them. He, he brings out the fact that as the lawgiver and as the lawkeeper, he is perfectly in obedience with the law. But if you also look in verse 13 through 15, we're going to be looking at the false converts. Those who have dramatically displayed, of, uh, have dramatic displays of God's work, following by disappointing detours of disobedience and even false expectations. You see, what that is, you think about this. When Jesus Christ is in the city, a a man comes up to him, and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. This man was seeking mercy 
what did he miss? Right? You see, he was seeking the mercy of cleansing from his leprosy. The God of the universe that even made him in his mother mother's womb, that gave him, him life, says, I will be clean. And yet, the man missed grace. You see, this whole entire passage is going to show you, both passages together, is going to show you what it means to seek mercy and to miss grace. You see, the leper, he received the mercy that he begged for. And the world wants mercy. They want the good things. They don't want the bad things. But the paralyzed man didn't even seek it, and he got grace. You see the difference? You see, another, another doctrine that you're going to see in verse 15, he says, I will be clean. He has power to clean, to cleanse. Look at verse 16. I apologize. Verse 16 says that he would withdraw the desolate places to pray. We're going to look at the Lord's continuous habit of seeking desolate places to pray. And we're going to talk about the fact that Christ alone, Christ sought solitude with God in devotion to God, and with fellowship with God. The question that we're going to ask ourselves is this. Do you have a prayer life? What's your prayer closet look like? Are you devoted to God as God is devoted to God? Are you anywhere close? Do you seek to be? Think about that. Maybe by the time we get there, you can look at your prayer life and say, but God, by his great grace, is making my prayer life what it should be. In verse 17... On one of those days, as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was on him to heal. Verse 17, we're going to look at our Lord's enemies. We're going to look into the inherited guilt and the imputed righteousness that we see in this section. You see, God imputes the healing, the righteousness that is his own, up on those that he heals, but his enemies are always there to lay a charge against him, to always attack. Read in verse 18 and 19, we're going to look at the faithful friend as we deal with the Great Commission. Who is your truest friend? Look at verse 18 and 19. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, your truest family is the one that takes you to Christ, who tells you of Christ, who extols the virtues of Christ, who will do anything to lead you to the throne of God. That's what these men did. In verse 20, we're going to see that See, what I promise is certainly going to be a controversial, at least because of its title, if not the message as a whole. The title that we're going to use in verse 20 is this. God does not forgive sin. And a new authority displayed by the God-man. Look at verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Wow. Think about that statement. 
never uttered before, never could be uttered, because they said it, who can forgive sins but God? The God-man displays his power and his authority to forgive sins, and we're going to talk about the fact that God does not forgive sin the way the world thinks that God forgives sin. And we're going to look at the doctrines of forgiveness, at those doctrines that need to come out of that section of not only forgiveness, but of perseverance. Listen to this. Verse 24, we're also going to look at this. You will consider, we're going to consider the suffering and the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 24. Let me jump down here. If you'll look through these sections, and and I'm just trying to break them down for you. He says this, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive, forgive sins. What did he do? He says, To the man who's paralyzed, I said, You rise, pick up your bed, and go home. What is the purpose in suffering? What is the sovereign pleasure of God in suffering? Why does God allow suffering? Is it just because he's evil? Is it because he's vindictive? Because he wants to be capricious and say, oh, look what I can do? Or is it because God in his sovereignty has a purpose? Could we possibly trust a God who would allow sin and evil into the world? You see, these doctrinal truths come out. These truths come out as we just read the passage of Scripture. But I want you to notice something else. Verse 24 also says this. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. Capital S. Capital M. Son of Man. It is a title for Christ. But it's not just a title for Christ. It's his favorite title. Because it points back to the Son of Man in the book of Daniel. We're going to talk about Daniel's prophecy fulfilled and the proclamation of the Son of Man. What does it mean that Jesus Christ calls himself the Son of Man? Why does he call himself that? But last but not least, look at verse 25 and 26. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And, and amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. We're going to look at the grace poured out. We're going to look at amazing grace in the will of man. You see, when God's grace is poured out upon this paralytic who had no ability of his own, or you and me who have no ability to save ourselves, we do one thing. We become obedient even to the point of death. He rose up and went home. But I also want you to see the will of man. We see that God's grace is poured out, but I want you to see also the astonishment of the people and the amazing apathy of the witnesses of grace. Think about this. All of these men saw the miracle power of the holy God, and not one of them came for salvation. Not one of them ran up and said, God save us. They admitted that something extraordinary had happened, 
but none of them repented. None of them, of their own freedom, of their own choice, ran to God. But God in his sovereignty did the one thing that only God can do, to save whom he would. If you'll look at the passages here, you're going to notice that there was a group of faithful men and women, presumably, that followed Christ and brought someone to Christ. But there was only one faithful Savior, and he saved those faithful men and one paralytic. You see, the point is not this, that everyone must repent. The point is this, Jesus saves, and only Jesus saves. Yes, we must repent. That's the way we come to salvation. But only Jesus saves. That's why he says that the, 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 the Pharisee would say, this is blasphemy. Because there were so many would say that they were saved based upon the work they had done in keeping the law. Christ saves apart from the law. Did you notice that the, the, the paralytic did nothing to assure his salvation? He couldn't even move. He couldn't even save himself. He couldn't bring himself to God in Christ. And we're going to talk about all these great doctrines. Well, that's a lot of doctrinal and biblical truth. And just think about all that's going to be discussed in these passages. As, as I've just laid out some of these things, I, I mean, I didn't give you every doctrine, but we're going to talk about a lot of stuff in these passages. Because it is clearly seen in these passages if you'll just do the work of breaking them down. Look at the context and the words of what happened and why Jesus did this. Dr. Luke was very good and astute at doing one thing, teaching us truth, teaching us biblical truth, doctrinal truth, truth about who God is. And his purpose, when at the very beginning, as we saw to O. Theophilus, was to tell him of the perfect certain knowledge of who Christ is and why he needs to be saved. Amen? That's what we're going to purpose here. But now here's the question that I want to ask. Which of the doctrines that we've talked about right now, election, predestination, let's say original sin, um, total depravity, limited atonement, irresistible grace, imputed righteousness, I mean, all this is in here. Um, you know, the fallenness of man, you know, Christ, the, the mediator, the high priest, all these doctrinal truths. When you go through these, which one would you think would be the most important truth in Scripture? Think about it. Out of all these things, which one? You know what I think it is? You know what I think it is? I love that. It's to glorify God. It's important. Now, I don't want to take away from any one of them, but I'm asking you which one is the most important. You know what I think it is? I think that that every one of these is important, that those doctrines are necessary and true, that every one of them are true and necessary. But I believe that the linchpin that holds all those truths together is what is this, just labeled this way, the sovereign perseverance of the saints, also known as the preservation of the saints, also known as eternal security, also known as 
once saved, always saved. You've heard all of these said, and why would I say that that's the most important? Eternal security, the perseverance, the preservation of the saints. Many many uh, theologians have a major problem with saying the, the, the perseverance of the saints, and, and here's why. <clears throat> While it is perseverance, we persevere because we've been preserved, not because it is a work that we do. God's given us a new heart with a new conscience, a new soul, a new desire. See, God changes our dead status from being truly dead to being now and forever alive. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation. Does that go to a certain point when he says, I changed my mind? Okay? It's always, but there's a purpose in it. I want you to listen to the passages, and we're going to jump back here this one. Is there any way in the world we can set this thing that doesn't have a sleep timer on it? If you guys are smart enough, would you please figure that out for me? Because I appreciate that. I'm thinking of a big rock and a a screen. Going back into the pool. We're going back. Okay. I went the wrong way. <laughs> I apologize. We've been going back and forth trying to help everybody out somewhere. Okay. First Corinthians chapter one, verse four through nine. Think about this in all of those terms. Perseverance, preservation, eternal security, once saved, always saved. Okay? You guys know how I feel about that. If you're saved, you're always saved, okay? I, the ones they've always said, look, everybody's got an argument with that. Now, I've heard thousands of sermons against it, but they can't deny what the Scripture says. So let's just look at what the Bible says for a moment. We're going to come back and really dig into this, but the reason I wanted to finish out here is because I want to show you what some of the old teachers used to, used to talk about. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you. Grace was given to you. In Christ Jesus, in other words, I thank God, not you. You, I don't thank you for your salvation. I thank God because grace was given to you because of Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Christ, in him, in all speech and all knowledge. That means in your, in your entire life. That's everything about you. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. What he's saying to the Corinthians is this. Remember who the Corinthians were. They were the ones that we've just been talking about. They had all the problems in the world, but they're growing in grace. There's evidence that they're growing. The, the worst of the worst is still growing. And he says, I thank God always because of the grace of God that was given to you. And go, jump down. Even as the testimony by who? The Galatians, the Ephesians, all the people around him, all the people around them, they were saying, look, these people are not who they used to be. They're growing in grace. They're growing in knowledge. They're growing in truth. Their speech, their conduct, their lives is changing because of what God did to them through Christ. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you until you drop off and backslide. 
that what it says? What does it say? To the end. Wait a minute. He's going to sustain you for the purpose of being guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this one passage, we've just gotten rid of the whole idea that you can lose salvation. Because God purposed to take those people that were the worst Christians that we've ever heard of. And he graced them with salvation to bring them guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If grace is not persevering grace, persevering by God to you, if it's not preserving grace, then it's not grace. It's not grace. If it doesn't have its purpose to present you faithful, true, guiltless, then it's not grace. Verse 9, God is faithful conditionally, Sometimes God is faithful. That means always faithful. We read that in in, the book of Psalms uh, earlier, that God is faithful to pour out his love, his grace, his mercy, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son until the son gets tired of you. I didn't want to say this either. Until you get tired of the son. Is that what it says? If God has saved you, he's called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, before that you're dead in trespass and sin. You walk at the course of the world. Your conversation is wicked and evil. Your conduct is full of sin. But God. That is the underlining verse. Those two words, underline them. Use them. Love them. Learn to know that but God is what saved you. You deserve hell, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Who's the us? The Christians, the elect, the elect of God. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him. Now, wait a minute. Hold on just a minute here. If you can lose your salvation, if you can lose the the prevenient grace of God, if you can lose the kind intention and mercy of God, and if his will cannot be absolutely given to you, if you you can't know that in Christ you are grace upon grace, then why did he say this? You have been made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. If you can lose salvation, then why is that Bible verse there? Should it not be? Made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and if you persevere, if you continue the good work, if you do all the right things, as long as God doesn't get mad at you, as long as you don't lose it, shouldn't there be a point in there somewhere that there's your work involved? That's not what he says, and it's not found anywhere in Scripture. It says here that he purposed to save you so that he could already today, right now, see you sitting with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, the purpose is this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, the 
the us again, us who are in Christ, Jesus. Then, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The vehicle of salvation is faith, and that is a gift from God. And this is not of your own doing. Oh, I said I jumped ahead. It's the gift of God. Look here. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that you can't boast. In other words, the salvation is yours, the eternal security is yours, the perseverance is yours, the preservation is yours, the grace is yours, the continuing is yours, because Christ, Christ, Christ did it all. He's the one that saves you and keeps you and brings you into the eternal state. He's the one that gives you the guarantee of salvation. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The result of being made a new creature in Christ is that you work. Not you work because you want to be saved, but you work because you were created in Jesus Christ for the good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He predestined before the foundation of the world that you were going to be a Christian called out for his glory to work and live and love and want to be a recipient of grace, a child of God, you want to do the things that God says you're to do. You see, um, it's, it's your heart, it's your passion, it's your desire to want the things that God wants, to be obedient to the will of God. Let's do Jude 24 to 25. Now, in, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Just stop right there. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. If he's able to keep you from stumbling, what's the possibility of you losing salvation? Listen, to present you blameless. So for those who say, oh, so I can just sin willy-nilly. Nah. If you're a true creature in Christ, if you're a true creation in Christ, if you're new in Christ and you've been truly born again, you won't want to sin. You will want to do those things that God wants you to do. You won't want to rebel. God changes your heart and gives you a new desire so that you can be presented blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. He deserves all blessing and praise and glory and honor, all majesty, all, all exaltation, all worship, and our lives to boot, because he saved us before the foundation of the world, and predestined in his mind he already settled it, that you're going to be with him for all eternity, in glory. Isn't that amazing? You want to talk about perseverance? You want to talk about preservation? There are so many people that hate that doctrine, but I'm going to tell you something. As I told you, I found some of my favorite writers through God's grace in allowing me to meet David Miller. I believe God's providence was at work in my life to meet Jeff Knobler, to meet Steve McAllister, to meet all the pastors that I've met, to meet David Miller. What's amazing to me about that man is he speaks to the highest of the high. 
all of the big names. And yet he gave me his phone number, and I can call him today. If he's at home, he answers me. And I talk to him. And he's just humble, and he teaches from the Word of God such great truths. And he gave me a little Kindle. That little bitty Kindle has so enriched my life and caused me to have at my hands things I wouldn't normally have. To close this, I want to just read this to you. This comes from B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield was a great theologian, great teacher, and he wrote this as an introductory essay on Augustine in the Pelagian Controversy, and he wrote it in 1887. Now, I want you to listen to this because it plays right into all these doctrines we're talking about. I need a drink to get started. <laughs> the necessity of grace to man, Augustine or Augustine, argued from the condition of the race as partakers of Adam's sin. God created man upright and endowed him with human faculties, including free will, and gave him freely that grace by which he was able to retain his uprightness being thus put on probation with divine aid to enable him to stand if he chose. Adam used his free choice for sinning and involved his whole race in his fall. By the way, that's why we call this the federal head. As the federal or overarching head of all mankind, Adam fell in sin. The Bible says in Romans that Sin came through Adam and death by sin. God says that he gave him this this freedom. Being thus put on probation with divine aid to enable him to stand if he chose, Adam used his free choice for sinning and involved his whole race in the fall. It was on account of this sin that he died physically and spiritually. And this double death passes over us all, that all his descendants by ordinary generation are partakers in Adam's guilt and condemnation, Augustine is sure from the teaching of Scripture. And this is the fact of original sin, from which no one, no one generated from Adam is free, and from which no one is freed, saved, as regenerated in Christ. But how, but how we are made partakers of it, he is less certain. Sometimes he speaks of it by some mysterious unity of the race, some, uh, so that we are all personal, personally present in the, in the individual Adam, and thus the whole race was the one man that sinned. Sometimes he speaks of it in the sense of the modern realist, as if Adam's sin corrupted the nature and the nature now corrupts those to whom it is communicated. Sometimes he speaks as if it were due to simple heredity. Sometimes, again, as if it depended on the presence of shameful confusion. I'm sorry, I can't get that word out. I'm not going to try anymore. In the act of procreation, so that the propagation of guilt depends on the propagation of offspring by means of procreation. 
however transmitted, it is yet a fact that sin is propagated and all mankind became sinners in Adam. The result of this is that we lost the divine image, though not in such a sense as to liniments, uh, as, as, as to that of liniments of, of its remain to us, and the sinning soul making the fresh, the flesh corruptible. Our whole, our whole nature is corrupted, and we are unable to do anything of ourselves truly good. His, this includes, our, of course, our, our, an injury to our will, Augustine, writing in the popular eye, treats this subject in popular language, but it is clear that he is distinct, he has distinguished in his thinking between the faculty and the broader sense. Am I confused yet? Okay. Okay, I'm going to read it all again. As a mere faculty, will is and always remains an indifferent thing. Does that make sense to you? The will is and always remains an indifferent thing. After the fall, as before it, continuing poised in indifference and ready, like a weathercock, to be turned whithersoever the, the breeze that blows from the heart. So your will is a matter of your heart. Does that make sense? Your will is the matter of your heart. And the Bible declares that the heart of man is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Now listen. It is not the faculty of willing, but the man who makes that faculty that is that has suffered change from the fall. In paradise, man stood in full ability. He had what's called the posse non secura, but not yet the non posse procura. That is, and I'm going to give this to you, he was bestowed with the capacity for either part and possessed the grace of God by which he was able to stand if he would, but also the power of free will by which he might fall if he would. So in other words, Adam had true free will to do whatever he chose to do. But when he fell, he could not change his mind. And when he fell, he fell under the condemnation of sin and the guilt of sin and became slave to it. And when he became slave to it, all of his offspring became slaves as well. But by his fall, he has suffered a change. is corrupt. And under the power of Satan, his will, in the broader sense, is now injured, wounded, diseased, and enslaved, although the faculty of will remains indifferent. Augustine's criticism of Pelagius' discrimination of capacity of the will, the act, does not turn on the discrimination itself, but on the incongruency of placing the power and ability and mere capability and possibility, rather in the living agent of the will and the act. So in other words, what he's saying is, the Pelagian argument was that we are a blank slate and we're free and we don't have anything outside corrupting us, that we are free to do whatever we will. 
And that's the problem with us discussing a sovereign free will. That's this is the problem when we talk about free choice and free will, is we coming from an aspect of a will that's not corrupted, that's not dead in trespass and sin. And if we're not careful, we tend to think that our will is just as free as Adam's was before the fall. So that's what he's trying to get at. He himself is, is, adopts an essentially similar distribution with only this correction and thus keeps the faculty of will indifferent, but places the power of using it on an active agent, on man. According, then, to the character of this man, what will the use of the free will be? If the man be, be holy, he will make a holy use of it. If he will be corrupt, he will make a sinful use of it. So in other words, your will's neutral in this context when there is no sin. Your will's neutral, and if you're holy, if you truly have the free will to choose, then if you're holy, you're going to do what's holy. But if you are corrupt, you're going to do what's corrupt. The problem then lies with this. Was Adam truly holy as God is holy? Think about it. If he was holy as God is holy, then no sin could have touched him. Though he was holy, he did not have experiential holiness. He did not have certain holiness. It was conditional upon his righteous choices and life. You and I don't have that privilege. You and I don't have that. We are sinners by nature, by birth, and by choice. It's what we do. It's because it's who we are. We must be made holy by the holiness of another because we don't possess holiness. Amen? So here he goes on to say this. They have free will. The faculty by which they act remains in indifferency, and they are allowed to use it just as they choose. But such as they cannot desire, they cannot choose anything but evil. In other words, a worldling, a wicked, fallen, dead, and trespassing sinner cannot choose the good because they don't have the active agency of goodness. They don't have holiness. And because they don't have holiness, they can't choose holiness. Only thing they have is being dead in trespass and sin. That's why they're righteous, because they're filthy rabbits. And the same for us, by the way. If it's not for Christ, our righteousness is the same way. <clears throat> he goes on to say this. Thus, they are slaves to sin, which they obey, and while they their free wills avail for sinning, it does not avail for doing any good unless they first be freed by the grace of God. In other words, we can't do anything good because we are slaves to the sin that we've corrupted ourselves to. Adam did it, and we do it through our own personal sin. He says, it is undeniable that this view is in consonance with the modern philosophy and psychology. Let us once conceive of the, the will as simply the whole man and the attitude of willing, and it is immediately evident that however abstractly free the will is, it is conditioned and enslaved by all the actions in all of its actions by the character of the willing agent. In other words, back again to the will, we 
are truly enslaved just by our own character, our own conduct. A bad man does not cease to be bad in acting in the act of willing. A good man remains good even if his acts in his acts of choice. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. A bad man does not cease to be bad in the act of willing. And a good man remains good even in his acts of choice because they have been changed. In its nature, grace is assistance, help from God, and all divine aid may be included under the term. As well, what may be called natural as what may be called spiritual aid. Both aids are the same. Spiritual grace includes, no doubt, all external helps that God gives man for working out his salvation, such as the law, the preaching, the gospel, the example of Christ, by which we may learn the right way. It also includes forgiveness of sins, by which we are free from the guilt already incurred. But above all things, that which God gives by his Holy Spirit, without uh, uh, working within, not without, by which man is enabled to choose and do what he sees by the teaching of the law or the gospel or the nature of natural conscience to be right. Within this aid are included those spiritual exercises which we call regeneration, justification, and perseverance to the end. In other words, all divine assistance by which, in being made Christians, we are made to differ from other men. Augustine is fond of representing this grace as an essence to the writing of God's law, or, uh, as, as in essence the writing of God's law on our hearts, so that it appears hereafter as our own desires, our own wishes, and even more prevalently, as the shedding abroad of love in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, given to us by Christ Jesus. Therefore, as an operation with God's aid, just the things which hitherto we have been unable to choose because of the bodies of sin. Now, if you got confused by that, let me lay this out for you. God gives us the spiritual grace in all ways, in all manners, to exercise all these things, leading us to, first of all, justification, regeneration, and the perseverance to the end. In other words, all divine assistance. And what Augustine is saying is that it appears hereafter as our own desires. In other words, the things we used to love, we now hate. The things we used to hate, we now love. We love to be righteous. We love to be holy. We love to be in the Word. We love to be in church. We love to witness. We love to share the gospel. And believe it or not, we even love persecution. Suffering. We even love it because we know it leads us to greater truth in Christ. It leads us more and more to God. We know it leads to more and more holiness because God is worthy we begin to no longer see ourselves as the issue, but God as the one that is so worthy. See the difference? 
And God's great gift of perseverance He draws us. I've got about 20 more pages, but you don't want to go through all that. So listen to this. The effects of grace are according to its nature. Take it as a whole. It is the recreative principle sent forth from God for the recovery of man from his slavery to sin and for his reformation in the divine image. Considered as to the time of its giving, it is either operating or cooperating grace, i.e., either the grace that first enables the will to choose the good or the grace that cooperates with an already enabled will to do good, and it is therefore also called prevenient or subsequent grace. Grace that is given beforehand or subsequent to repentance. Confession, a drive to be holy. It's all of grace, and it's to bring you to the feet of Christ. It's to bring you to the foot of the cross. You see, in this passage, the God of all grace came to men. In the passages that we're talking about, the God of all grace came to man, but he only gave the forgiveness of sin, specifically in this passage, to one man. Did you see that? All the people were running around. Presumably there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that wanted the, the mercy of, of being forgiven uh, or, or being given, given new limbs or being healed of infirmity. They were all wanting something from God or the, the, the man that was healing Christ, but he only gave his grace, his sin-perfecting, sin-absolving, sin-destroying, sin-crushing, and righteousness-producing grace to one. Okay? Now, we saw that, that there were those that believed, and we understand, so I'm talking about in this passage, the actual act of forgiveness was only given to one. You see that? That's prevenient grace. That's the grace that changes the man. It wasn't his own will. It was by the grace, the sovereign grace and will of the Holy Ghost. When we go through these passages, we're going to talk about everything we can get a hold of. As long as it's in there. If they can't find it in there, we're not going to talk about it. But I, I want to see if you see it in there. Do you see total depravity in these men? Do you see unconditional election? Limited atonement? Amen. What about absolute inability? Right? Think about it. Perseverance of the saints? Well, the man got up and walked away, and it hurt his inwardly if God saved him. He saved him for all time, all time, right? If God saved him, he saved him to persevere. If he says, man, your sons, your sins are forgiven you, how many sins, Gary? It has to be all of them. He can't just say, I'm going to forgive you some of them. Otherwise, forgiveness is not forgiveness. Amen? Okay. Past, present, and future. Rest in this grace. You see, this is why I love Reformed teaching and and Reformed theology, because when we grab a hold of these truths and we start bringing them out, wow, do they ever show up. Just start thinking you know, in terms of what does the Scripture say? What is it showing us? Dig deep. Okay? This text. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know this has just been an overview, but Lord, I'm excited. I'm excited about the overview, Lord. I'm excited about what's going to be coming uh, in God's Next week, Lord, I just pray that you'll just give us the, the strength and the mercy to, to be able to just to plow on as we 
begin to dive into the text and, and bring out these truths. Lord, glorify yourself in our hearts and our lives. Forgive us of all of our sins and help us to work together. Bring praise and glory to you. Christ, stand up right now. And it 
between that person and even worships. Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45 through 46 says this. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothing and let his hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean and shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So he could not have fellowship with the people, and he had to live outside of the camp. The leprosy was considered to be ceremonial unclean, uncleanness, and leprosy was even used to illustrate sin in the scriptures and the heart and the life of mankind. Sin contaminates everything that it contacts. You think about the nature of sin. It contaminates just as leprosy does. Not only does it contaminate, it corrupts. It corrupts morals and principles and values and conduct and character. It, sin corrupts absolutely. Now, I remember when I was a little child, uh, I was probably 9 or 10, maybe 11 years old. I, I think it was 9. I remember the first time I'd ever taken God's name in vain, and it was not funny. Uh, I'd just gotten wore out by my mom for being uh, naughty. And I walked back in the hallway, and I'd taken God's name in vain. That was mad. My grandma told me that lightning was striking if I ever said that word. I got on my face scared to death. That lightning was going to come down through the little trailer and hit me. Just begging God. I'm sorry, God. Please forgive me. Because I didn't want lightning to strike. Because I knew it would hurt really bad. If I strike it, and I would be on fire. I would be dead. So I was scared to death. Well, guess what? Lightning didn't strike. So I never did it again, right? The next time I did the next time I took God's name, you know what I did? I didn't fall down on my face and I knew lightning would strike. The next time I did it, and then the next time I did it, it got to the point where sin had consumed that issue, and it was no longer sin to me, but something that I did as part of my lifestyle. Perhaps you guys in this room know what I'm talking about is the fact that sin, once you begin to sin, not only does it corrupt good morals, but it also consumes you. It consumes you, but it also contaminates, because, you know, the, the one thing about sin is, is that as a sinner, I don't want to be a sinner alone. I want to hang out with other sinners. And we want to compare sin and brag about sin, be a part of other sins. So what do we do? We contaminate each other with our filthy lifestyle, our wicked lifestyle as a sinner. That's why we refer to total depravity. In these scriptures, that's why we refer to it in Reformed theology. Total depravity, or another word for it, is absolute inability. That's part of the doctrine of grace. Every man born under Adam is from conception a sinner by nature. So from the moment we're conceived, even David said that from, from birth, from the womb, before even birth, he was conceived as a sinner. He wasn't saying my mom was in a sinful, adulterous lifestyle, he was saying, I am a sinner from birth, from before birth, from conception. He has the very sin nature in him, but he sins in practice as well. Romans 5, 12 to 14 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even more, even 
Ghost, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The leper was pleading for mercy from what he perceived was his malady. You see, in the passage in Romans chapter 5, the sin of the world came from Adam. The sin that came from Adam was not like everyone else's sin, but it was similar in the fact that it was sinful. Every single one of us were in sin, and all the world from Adam to Moses was in sin. But if you think about Cain, his sin was not the same as Adam's sin. His sin was different, and yet it was still sin under the law. Under what law? The unwritten law? The law of God? The commandment that was given? You see, it wasn't the commandment that was written on stone, but the commandment that God wrote in the hearts of everyone from Adam through all history. The leper, see, he pleads for mercy for his perceived malady. You see, this leper, he was pleading to Christ, have mercy on me, have mercy. But if you notice, he was pleading for God to heal, for Christ to heal him of his leprosy. He received mercy from his temporal problem, but he was blind to his spiritual need. I want you to think about this passage. In the passage in Luke, he says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He knew that Christ had a power that no one ever had displayed before. He knew that Christ could heal him of his malady, of what he thought was his greatest need. He knew that Christ could heal him of his temporal problem. And you see, the problem is, is today, most people want Christ to heal of their temporal issues. Most people in America today want God to heal them of their financial situation, or their health situation, or their family situation. You've heard Christian pastors or professing Christian pastors say, if you'll just come to Christ, he will make your life better. If you'll just come to Christ, he will make your life whole. If you'll, he'll satisfy your need. If you have a health problem, he'll take care of it. Todd Bentley's back in the world again today, and he's kicking people to death and, and blaspheming God and punching in the face and telling him the Holy Spirit, told him to do it. And he's still doing all those blasphemies, and he's telling people, if, if you'll just do what I say, God will save you. And by salvation, he means make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, and happy. You see, what this man was seeing is his temporal problem. He came because he wanted a better life. He came because he wanted a better situation. He didn't want to be the leper who was cast out of the city anymore. He wanted to be the former leper who could say, look what God did. He gave me a new life. He gave me health, and now I have wealth. I'm happy, too, by the way, because I'm a leper who is no longer a leper. I'm clean. I can be with my family. You see, Christ came in and he fulfilled his temporal problem. But the man was blind to his spiritual need. Think of this. This man's malady, if he would have died as a leper in Christ, he would have died a righteous man before a holy God. He would have died and had eternal life. But this man ran to the God who was sovereign over his sin, who was sovereign over his life, who could heal him at the touch. And what did he do? Give me temporal things. Give me the things of this world. He was granted the common mercy that all men are given. You've heard the term of common grace. 
I don't like the term. Because there's nothing common about grace, by the way. Grace is great. Grace is all-sufficient. Grace is the divine mercy of a holy God imputed to those whom he has graced to grace. Mercy, however, is given to every man. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches and the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I want to point out these issues of the Master's mercy. Verse 13, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. This man had just come to the God of the universe who is incarnate, and he says, if you will, if it's your desire, you can make me clean. If you want to, God, you can cleanse me. I know that you have the power to cleanse me. Jesus shows his compassion and his mercy, and he says, I will be cleansed. Jesus demonstrates the prerogative and the power of God. You see, it was only God alone that could make this man clean, and it was only God alone at that moment in time that could touch him, and when he touched him, immediately the leprosy left him. It was God alone that was demonstrating that power. But Jesus also displays the authority of God over sickness. I want to touch lightly on this because we're going to talk about it later as we're going through these passages. Jesus Christ displays the authority of God over the man's sickness and showing that he has authority over all sickness. But what happened in this passage? Did the man fall down on his face and say, Oh my God, my Savior, my Lord, I trust in you. You've given me salvation. No, not one instance. Not one instance did he say, Lord, you have saved me. You have cleansed me. You've made me clean. I am clean in heart and in soul. No, he was clean in body. He was crying out for a cleanness that's not unlike the ten lepers that came later on. And one comes back and says, Lord. And he says, where are the others? Where are the others? You say that they received healing, and yet they missed grace. This leper, he receives the master's mercy. Matthew 5, 45 says this, For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain to the just and the unjust. Now, speaking of the common mercy of God, that is what God does in his mercy. That is what God does as he's displaying his kind, infinite mercy to man, is that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. You have to think of mercy in this, in this way. What does man deserve? Does he deserve any good? Does he deserve any kindness of God? Does he deserve any mercy? Or does he not deserve hellfire from the moment Adam fell? See, the Bible declares that all mankind are condemned from Adam. We just read that. That from Adam they are dead in sin. Matthew 10, 28 says this. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot the soul, cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You know, you have to think about God's sovereign mercy in the context of the Scriptures. When God is talking in Matthew chapter 10, he is speaking to Pharisees and the Sadducees, men and women of God, men and women of religion, men and women of some form of character, from the Roman soldiers to the Greeks, from all the people that were around him, the Jews, those who were learned and those who were fools. He spoke to the pious and the righteous. He spoke to all the men together, all the women that could hear.
Don't fear Satan. But Satan can't kill you. It is God alone who is sovereign over your life. And it is God alone who has mercy on whom he wills. Romans 9, 15 says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You see, God's common mercy, if you will, is given to every man, even those that don't deserve it. Let me ask you a question. What was wrong with Satan on this man? God's common mercy is given to every man, even to those who don't deserve it. No one deserves it. Mercy is God's kindness towards his enemies. Mercy is God displaying his sovereignty over even his enemies. He causes the rain to fall on them. They get sunshine. They get food. They get housing. They get clothing. Like he says, there's sparrows that are flying around. Even two sparrows that are flying around, one of them falls and he even knows about it. He cares for us. And that is his kind mercy. Now, the question you've got to ask yourself is, in the mercy of God, is God's mercy free? Or is it in a debt that he owes to us? You see, what is being said in this passage is that Jesus is free to have mercy upon anyone that he sovereignly chooses to pour his mercy on. This leper comes to him, and he knows that he can't demand anything from him. But what does he seek? He seeks the mercy of of cleansing from leprosy. The whole entire world runs around and they want something from God, but it's not salvation. They want something from God, but it's not righteousness. They want something from God, but it's not justice. They want something from God, but it's not grace. Because the world says they don't need God's grace. They can get there on their own. The Christian recognizes that not only do they need God's mercy, but we also need his grace. See, Jesus is free to have mercy on anyone that he sovereignly chooses, and he tells the man, I will. In the, in the authorized verse, it says, be thou clean. You be clean. It is my will. Yes, I will. He's under no obligation to be mercy, merciful to anyone. Let me rephrase that. He's under no obligation to mercy anyone. In Romans chapter 9, he says, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. You guys, Roman, uh, uh, Roman Catholics have it in their Bible. The authorized version has it in their Bible. King James uh, authorized. The NASB has it in their uh, several passages. And it actually, if you go back to the Greek, it says this. I will mercy whom I mercy. See, God doesn't have mercy. He mercies who he wants to. In other words, he gives them divine mercy. The blasphemy. The one that hates God, that reviles against God, that wants to murder all the Christians over in Afghanistan, over in Iraq, or over in Syria, or here in America today. Yeah, you probably. Over here, wherever they're at, hiding out, they're ready to kill, the, to kill the Christians because they can't stand Christ, and they hate God, and they don't want Jesus Christ, and they want to holler Allah Akbar. He's only there because of the grace and mercy of God. You have your breath this very day because of the grace and mercy of God. His mercy is extended to everyone. Everyone gets common mercy. They get the very breath of life in their lives. They get to eat. They get all the good things in the world, even those who are going to blaspheme God to the very end. But mercy is also long-suffering. Mercy is also long-suffering. Jesus chose to heal this leper, thus granted his petition, and he's showing mercy to him. The man 
seduced Adam by her, and he, without any compulsion, willfully transgressed the law of the Creator and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. And this act, God, according to his wise and holy counsel, was pleased to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them. For from this death came upon all. All became becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of the soul and the body. This is why we refer to as original sin or total depravity. This is where we come from the concept of total depravity. They being the root and by God appointed, standing in the room and stead of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and their corrupted sin nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from then from them by ordinary means. Their descendants are therefore con- conceived in sin and are by nature the children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. That's what you had in this passage. A man who has been set temporally free. Now think about this. Or be set spiritually free. All actual transgressions proceed from the original corruption by which we are utterly indisposed, incapable, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. During this life, the corruption or nature remains in those who are regenerated, and although it is pardoned and mortified through Christ, yet the corrupt nature and all its motions are truly and properly centered. Now, this came from the 1689, but this is 1689, and right now we're in 2014, right? I want to take you back to 375. There's a British monk by the name of Pelagius. And he began teaching heresy in the church. And it was known as the Pelagian Controversy. Pelagius was a British monk who believed in the importance of human improvement without the need for divine aid. He believed that humans could save themselves by their works. And he taught that men were actually good and holy and not evil. He reasoned that since God commanded men to be holy, then they were actually capable of being holy. He taught that grace was not actually necessary and that men did not need Christ to be saved. Christ was only an example to us, he taught. And Augustine responded that humans were fallen by nature and in need of grace for God's salvation. Now, the Council of Carthage in 418 condemned Pelagius and accepted Augustine's view. Now, St. Augustine, and we'll talk to you more about it next next time we get together, but St. Augustine... It's been said to be the most important theologian in all of church history next to Paul the Apostle. That's a huge point. And it's true. He's the one that brought out the gospel of truth and fought against these heresies. He's the one that codified the truth of what salvation is from the scriptures. And what is important to note is that Pelagius came in and using natural philosophy, man's reasoning, he came along and he taught that by his reasoning, he believed that because God says 
that we are actually capable. He would take the word of God and twist it. And because of this, he was condemned as a heretic. All of his teaching was told that he was in heresy, that he was truly a heretic to teaching the things that he was teaching. And Augustine stood up and defended the faith. Commenting on Romans 5, we just read this. The judgment indeed was from one offense unto condemnation, but the grace was from many offenses unto justification. And he was teaching that because of the fall of Adam, it corrupted all mankind. Well, Pelagius was gathering a large crowd of people saying, no, that did not happen. And the point that Augustine was making was that we are totally and naturally in sin. That we are, by sin, natural. We, are, we have a sin nature that comes from Adam. We are, for the lack of a better term, totally depraved in our nature. That does not mean that we are as evil as we can be, but it means that in every way our, our depravity is total. In other words, if you took all of the person and divided that person out among all of their person, their attributes, their character, their conduct, even the good they do, all of it, then you add it all up, it means wholly depraved. In other words, it's absolute inability. In other words, we don't possess in ourselves the ability to do good. Well, we have to think about it this way. What does God's mercy, mercy actually do? You see, mercy has two purposes in Scripture. While all of God's mercy and kindness should draw men to repentance because of mankind's fall, uh, the, uh, their fallen nature, we don't come to God in repentance. You think of this. Because of what Pelagius was teaching is that you don't have to come to God in repentance. You don't need God for that. You don't need him for salvation. And what St. Augustine, and, and, and you're talking back in the 300s, that people were already teaching these heresies. And, and back in the 300s, there, there were councils and decrees that were standing up and defending, yes, salvation by the word of God is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what is the nature and the purpose of mercy? Mercy has two purposes in Scripture. While all God's mercy and kindness is supposed to draw us to repentance, I just told you this, because of man's fallenness, we can't get there from here. We will never seek out God's true mercy. The leper in this, in this passage did not come to God saying, God, save me a sinner. He did not come to God and say, God, look at you. I know you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. I know you're my Lord and my God. I know you're my King, my Savior. I know that you alone have the power to save. He said, if you want to, you can make me clean. You can heal my leprosy. As I told you, it has two purposes. One is to draw his own elect unto salvation. To draw his own elect unto salvation. Joel 2.13 says this. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Just stop right there. The people of the Jews did ceremonially what God would not accept. They would rend their garments, but they didn't care about the hearts. They weren't seeking God for mercy. Listen to this. And God calls them out and says, rend your hearts. In other words, be sorrowful. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He doesn't find joy in the death of the wicked, the scriptures tell us. Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. We just read that a minute ago. Look at Romans 3, 25 and 26. Romans 3, 25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction, one that was satisfied by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show the show God's righteousness. Listen to this. They almost been said. Because of the divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. That's his mercy. That's God's sovereign mercy to pass over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness today, or at the time this was written. Why did he allow Israel to sin? Why did he allow Israel to sin and not wipe them off the map? Did he not say that if the soul sins, it will truly die? Did he not say to Adam, if you sin, you will die? Am I wrong? Then why did he allow him to, to live? The scriptures tell it here. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in himself. Who can pull up his own bootstraps. Who can do it himself, right? The whole purpose of all of history was to, to show himself as righteous at the present time. Number two, the purpose of mercy is to prove the righteous judgment of God. Romans 9.22 says this, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? This is what you got to know. That passage I've heard so many people take that thing out of context and destroy that passage. It's not asking a question, what is God? It's not saying that God didn't actually do this. It's saying that God prepared all of us as wrath, vessels of wrath. We are all one, one lump of clay, and God in his great patience, his enduring kindness, his love, his mercy, and his grace, in his sovereign choice, called out vessels of righteousness. But God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so that in the age to come he might show himself gracious to those who he was gracious. First Peter three twenty says because they formerly did not obey when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. Does anyone remember how how long it took Noah to build the ark? Twenty days. Anybody got more? About hundred and twenty years. Well, you were close. Just just a few hours off. For 120 years, God had already decreed judgment on the earth. He had already decreed that everyone would die, and in his patience, he was forbearing to the wickedness of man so that he might save a few, that is, eight persons. The mercy of God is meant to prove the righteous judgment of God against the wicked. And you're going, but he saved eight persons. But the entire world, God judged mercy. He took his time for 120 years. The book of Hebrews says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. 120 years, Noah and his family preached the gospel. It's going to rain. Wrath is coming. Get in the ark. The people of Christ today cry out, judgment is coming. Look to Christ and live and all day long. People turn their back on the Holy God. Mercy 
temporarily restrains punishment. I just showed that to you in the last passage. Acts 17, 30-31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has a fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed for every day, for that one day. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Christ one day will judge the world in righteousness, but in his mercy he restrains that day. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hand and impenitent heart, your hard hand, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, there are so many that say God will never judge. God will never do that which is right. It's always been the same. It will never be that God will judge the way you say Luke 5, 18 to 20. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. I want you to think about the context of the leper in Luke 5. He cried out for healing, but he left his greatest need unfulfilled. Did he not? He cried out for mercy. He stood before God and accepted the thing that would perish. He accepted the thing that would perish. He got mercy, but he missed salvation. He sought mercy, and he missed grace. He gained the whole world, his whole body, and yet, if he died this way, he lost his own soul. Now, there are many passages in Scripture that, that talk to us about this, uh, this leprous man. There are several passages in Scripture, and not one of them tells us that he came to Christ for Savior. Many pastors read this, and they'll say, See, he fell on his face and said, Lord. Many pastors will read that and say, See, he said, Lord, and since he said, Lord, he has to be calling out to him for salvation. And because God healed him, that means he's automatically saved him. But we don't see that in this passage, and we don't see that in Scripture. God isn't under obligation to save. What I believe that you're going to see, though, while it's certainly possible that this man was saved, at some time in the future, if you'll look at that, you'll see that there is no indication in this passage that he was actually saved at that moment. Today, around the world, people are seeking mercy for what they perceive as their malady. They'll cry out to God as long as they don't have to get on their knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. People will cry out to God for the good things. People will cry out to God for all the good things that God provides. They just don't want the judgment that comes with them. They don't want God to come in and examine their lives and to know them. They don't want God to look at them and to say, you're the man, you're the sinner. They want a God who will say, peace be upon you. My peace I give to you. You're fine. You're healthy and dory. You want help? You got it. You want help? You got it. You want prosperity? You got it. It's going to kick in the chest. All you've got to do is work hard enough and pull yourself up by the bootstraps enough, and if you can get yourself up to me, just take that first step. I'll make your life joyous and happiness. There will be no more persecution for you. It will be a happy ride, a joyful ride. And so many people are hearing that. The faith promises of miracles and marvels, yet most miss out on the most important 
you see anywhere where he did the work of the gospel? Do you see anywhere where this man pulled himself up by his bootstraps? I will say something. If you come to Jesus that way, you don't come to Jesus at all. Because God won't accept you. God won't accept you coming to him and saying, look what I do. God won't accept you meeting him the first step. Either he does it all or he won't do it at all. He does it all. This man wanted to be, I'm sure, healed of his paralysis. And yet Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven. You see, he didn't want to just forgive, I mean, heal his paralysis. He wanted to show him divine grace to heal a man who did not deserve it spiritually. So what is grace? Grace is defined as unmerited favor. Grace is the irresistible act by which God bestows his blessing upon those whom he freely chooses to grace with grace. I love saying it that way. Listen to this. God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-D, acronym. God lavishes his people with grace, and he graces us with grace. You've got to think about what this is saying. Ephesians 1, 6 to 8 says, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood to forgiveness our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He has lavished grace upon us. You know how much grace it took to save you? Enough to cover all your sins. But not only does he, he doesn't stop there. He blesses you in the beloved because of grace. So by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not the work that you do. Now listen to Ephesians. We'll stay there for a minute. In 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy, there's that mercy concept. He's mercied us because of the great love with, he, with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ by grace. He mercies us and lets us live. I want you to think about, I'm going to jump back to mercy for a moment. You know what mercy does? It holds you out of hell. Mercy holds you out of the wrath that you deserve. Mercy gives, holds you out of the wrath you deserve. For purposes, the judgment and justice. He can be just in blessing us with grace and bestowing grace upon us where at one point in time he calls us out while we were dead and trespassing sin. He makes us alive together in Christ. Or, in his divine grace, he can choose that this is the day and hour that we die. The Bible says it's appointed for man to want to die. And after this comes the judgment. Ask yourself a question. Has God given you mercy? Or is God giving you mercy and grace? By grace you have been saved. And raise us up with him. Grace is this. It saves us and it raises us up with Christ. And it seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Unless you lose your salvation. You know what it says right there? No, it actually doesn't. It says, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Towards you in Christ. 
Repentance does not save you. Jesus Christ saves you. And he makes you. Hebrews 9, 27. And this is an appointed for man wants to die and after this comes a judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's a dual purpose in the coming of Christ. He comes to save those he saved and to condemn those who he has only mercy. See the kindness and the goodness of God. People are going to cry out to God on the day of wrath, Lord, I believe. Lord, I'm yours. Lord, hear my prayer. Lord, I've been a mistake. Lord, you're my God. I've been faithful to you. I've done all these good, mighty works. I've been penitent. I've done all this stuff for you. I even went to church. Heaven forbid, I went to church on Sundays and then on Easter and maybe on Christmas. Well, maybe I went every single Sunday. I never missed one. I was a good elder and a good deacon, a good churchman. I went to church and everybody saw how pious I am. Not everyone says to me, Lord, 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 you're in heaven. But ask yourself a question. God's kindness and his grace and his forbearance, has he mercied you? Do you deserve salvation? Because God's only given you mercy and you've worked hard enough for it. Or has he graced you and you still didn't deserve it? You see, there are people in this room think they're saved because they've done good works, they've done, done good deeds, and you got to understand, there are people in this room, as small as we are, who would say, but Christ saved me, and I'm doing all these good works, and they never want to look at the foundation. They never want to look at the beginning, the fruit, the evidence. You see, if the foundation stone is broken, then the whole building is broken. You can't start on a bad foundation. Either you come to Christ in his grace, by his grace, drawn to repentance, or you come by the sheep gate over the over the wall instead of through the sheep fold, through the sheep gate. There's only one way unto salvation, and that is through Christ. Either he bears your sin for you in mercy and grace, or the only thing you'll ever hear is, depart from me. I've given you enough time. I've given you enough mercy. You've had long enough in your life to come repenting before me, yet you never would. I've given you my mercy, and that was sufficient. The question is, have you come to repentance by God's grace and kind grace? For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of works, and not of yourselves, it is the free gift of God. That means you didn't do anything against. That means that in God's kindness and his forbearance, he has graced you through Christ. We need to be people of grace, of mercy, of forbearance, long suffering, because we've been graced. Heavenly Father, what I want to come before you, I want to thank you so much for our time together. God, I thank you so much for being so good to us. But we don't even deserve mercy. And you pour out mercy upon even your enemies. The Bible says, while we were still your enemies, while we were dead in sin, while we were still enemies of God in our minds, while we were still slaves of Satan, while we were workers of iniquity, while we were following the course of this world, God, you saved. 
by your great grace, by your predestined hand, you and your forbearance. God, we just look at this passage, and we see that you saved a man that could not save himself. And then in your sovereignty, you only gave mercy to a man who was not even seeking for your salvation. No man seeks after the Lord, your word tells us. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none of us that are holy and none of us that seek after the Lord. God, in your great grace, I pray that you'll draw all men to yourself. That, Lord, you'll draw all these people here at the Grace Church to yourself. This community needs salvation. And God, I pray that in your kindness, in your mercy, your patience, your forbearance, you'll use us as vessels of mercy to reach out and call out to the lost that there is only one way of salvation, that's through Jesus Christ. To the praise and glory of His grace. We are in Luke chapter 5, 12 through 26, and we just read that passage. Some questions that come to light. The title of the sermon is going to be Sovereignty, Immutability, and Grace. Now, last week we talked about mercy and grace as we see it in this passage. I laid out for a few weeks ago some of the, the aspects of God's grace and his mercy and his sovereignty as seen in this passage. In these passages in Luke, you seek the sovereignty of Christ, the deity of Christ, God's sovereignty. You see his provision of Zeus's salvation in Christ alone. But you, you see many doctrinal standpoints that come out. This week, I really wanted to express to you guys the doctrine of grace, not the doctrines as in the, the grace of God in, in, in salvation is in total depravity, you know, the tulip idea of, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. But the doctrine of grace itself, what does grace look like in the scriptures? What do we see from church history? And now we've done the ordo salutis, and when we went through the ordo salutis, we talked about all these different issues of of the, the, the tulip, if you will, of total depravity and, and irresistible grace. We talked about all those things from a, a doctrinal standpoint, just looking at it from uh, what, it, what it says, just clearly from a doctrinal standpoint. But what I want to really focus in on is the history of the doctrines that we believe in, the history and where we came from and why we came to these conclusions. As you read Luke chapter 5, there's unmistakable, undeniable attribution to God and to Jesus Christ of his sovereign will, his purpose, his plan, his sovereign ability and control over sin, over, over nature itself. We see that he has power to heal disease. But we have to look behind that to see why. Was it, was it just because it was given to him or was it in himself? Was it his inherent nature. And as we look at these things, I start talking to you guys about the mercy of God and the difference between mercy and grace. And last week, I told you that mercy can be described as the long-suffering of God, the forbearance of God, or the patience of God displayed towards his enemies. Now, all through Scripture, you see these ideas of mercy. God is the mercy in God. And the Scriptures are clear that when you've been mercyed by God, you, you have been given a, a stay, a reprieve of what you truly deserve. 
See, the mercy of God is that thing which holds you from the hell and the wrath of God which you deserve. But there's also the issue of the grace of God. And now you think about the, the Luke chapter 5, verse 12, and you go through 26, we see clearly the mercy of God in the man running to Christ and saying, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can heal me. And he says, I will. Now be clean. But what did not happen to that man is the grace of salvation, the forgiveness of sin. And we saw the mercy of God to reprieve his death, to stay the execution of the wrath of God against that man. He truly deserved to die in his sin. He truly deserved the wrath of God. But God in his mercy and his kindness has given this man life. You today have been given life. Whereas grace is defined as the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the irresistible act by which God bestows his blessing upon those whom he freely chooses to grace with grace. Ephesians tells us that he lavishes grace upon his elect. That grace is an abounding grace. The Bible tells us that that it is God's unmerited favor. The Bible makes it clear that it is not the works of righteousness which we've done, but through Christ, the grace that was given to us is unmerited. An an attribute of grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. You get all of the blessings of grace that a heavenly God, that a gracious God, kind, benevolent God can give you based on his attributes alone. Then we looked at the fact that God lavishes his people with grace and he even graces us completely with grace. I think that for the believer, mercy, mercy withholds wrath, which we deserve until the day that grace is applied to the heart that God makes to life in Christ. The response is a humble and obedient life. Before the believer, we have to deal with the issue of the will. When God gives us a new heart with new desires, he gives us a new will. That we want to do those things that we no longer, that we never used to want to do. Before Christ, we were dead in trespass and sin, and we walked as the course of this world, and we wanted the things of this world. In God's mercy, he did not trust us and kill us because of our sins. He did not allow us to die and meet his wrath. But in God's grace, he gave us a new heart with a new will. The heart has always been seen as the faculty of the man who wills and works. The interworking of the man, his will. See, when God gives us a new heart, that is the will. The new desire to work out our own salvation because Christ has worked in us. Mercy is God's true love poured out to even those who are his enemies, condemned under the law and liable to the punishment of God's own wrath. But what would you do without grace? You say, oh, God has mercyed me, and that is so great, that is wonderful, that is so true, that if you're alive today, you're alive because of the mercy of God alone. The only reason you're alive is because of great mercy. But what will you do without grace? What will you do without 
out the unmerited favors of God. Have you worked hard enough to work out your own salvation to merit heaven? Will you work hard enough to earn your reward in heaven? Without grace, you are waiting for the day when mercy ends and judgment begins. On that day, will you be found wanting, or will your righteous deeds prove that you worked hard enough to earn your way to heaven? I want you to look with me at some of the historical and theological perspectives of grace and to see which is the biblical. I want you to see which view Luke is taking in Luke chapter 5, verse 12 through 26. Is he taking the view that this man merited salvation based on the fact that he ran and said, I'm a leper, cleanse me? Is he taking the view that all the men around him were morally neutral, that they were actually good people? Is he taking the view that the paralyzed man had enough merit in himself to save himself and therefore chosen? Is that the view that's being taken here? Or is the view the mercying God and the gracious God? In this passage so far, we have seen the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, God the Son. But all that is predicated on the sovereignty and the immutability of God. To make a man clean from leprosy, Jesus had to have absolute immutability and sovereign power over all of creation. But in order to forgive sin, Jesus had to not only possess some degree of sovereignty. Jesus had to seek sovereignty himself. And that only belongs to God, as attested by the Pharisees. His immutability must be supreme and unquestioned. The evidence that we see in this passage bears that out. As Brandon read just a few minutes ago, the man did indeed run to Christ for his external healing. Everybody runs to Christ for external healing, for healing over their situation, but only Christ comes to them for what is internally needed. That uh, group of good men that came and, and brought this paralyzed man to Christ, they brought him for healing. But if you notice, he says, verse 20, and when he saw their faith, Whose faith? Their faith. Not speaking of the, of the paralyzed man, because they saw their faith, the ones who had brought this man to Christ. When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. It was not his great attribute of faith that caused him to be forgiven of sin. It was not his working out his own salvation, but God's grace alone. You see, we have a a bad understanding of salvation. Salvation is not of your repentance, because your repentance will not save you. It is Jesus Christ alone who saves. He saves you and graces you with repentance. Ephesians tells us that the response of all the work that God does is that we simply believe. We come to an understanding of our wickedness, our depravity, and we see ourselves as sinners in need of salvation. We don't demand salvation of God. 
and we don't run to God saying, oh, save me, until the God of the universe comes and says, until he saves us. Verse 21 says, And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see the very nature of their question? The very nature of their question is, Who does this man think he is? Only God forgives sins. And his response is, you're right, I am God. You see, in order for him to be able to make the statement, man, your sins are forgiven you, he had to be sovereign. He had to have all control, including over this man's fallen physical body. The proof was, why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. He exercises sovereign control, not only over the man's infirmity, not only over the leper's infirmity, but sovereign control over sin itself. Why is it? How is that possible? As this man says, as the Pharisees said rightly, who can forgive sin but God? But God only forgives sin by the shedding of blood. So the Bible says without the remission, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Amen? This is a prevenient grace. We'll talk about that next week. Don't worry about writing it down. We'll talk about it next week. I want you to think about this. It is God who graces man with grace. It is God who is kind. But in order to forgive sin, Jesus not only had to possess sovereignty, he had to be sovereign himself. He couldn't have been just a great prophet. He couldn't have been just a good man. He couldn't have been just one of the sages. He couldn't have been just one of the apostles. He had to be the apostle. He had to be the prophet. He had to be the sovereign. He had to be the high priest. Not just one of the high priests. He had to be the very one that was mighty to save. See, all the high priests were an imitation of the one true high priest, the Hebrew Belgian. He had to be the Lamb of God. All the lambs were an imitation and a poor one at that because the blood of bulls and goats can never cleanse the sin. It was Christ alone that had to be. And in order for us to see the amazing grace of God, we have to see that God is both amazing in his grace and sovereign in his grace. But you think about this. In God's sovereignty, in his grace, it has to be immutable. In other words, it cannot be thwarted. When God graced this sinner with grace and healed from his infirmity and from his sin, he had to do it all. Jesus had to pay it all, and truly all to him he owed. Think about that, that song. Sin had left the sins in pain, and he washed it by his He had to wash it in himself. And what he would do 
in the near future for that man. But God had to be sovereign. Christ had to be sovereign. Sovereignty means this. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.